Welcome to this month's episode of the ARC Audio Book Club. My name is Megan Holtz, and this month we're diving into experimental affect theory fictocriticism with Kathleen Stewart and Lauren Balant's new book, The Hundreds. And here to talk about it are Tomil Qualig. How do you doodly? Nice. Sherry Helberg. Hi. And of course, Giovanna Alessandro. Hello. Right. I wanted to start things off by making quite clear to our listeners that this is a very different book from everything else we've covered on the podcast so far, uh, because it is ostensibly a work of critical theory, but a very odd kind of critical theory work at that. It's more, as I said in the introduction, something like a, a thing called fictocriticism, where you are sort of embodying the style of a fictive persona to go about your analysis. Um did anyone else have any first impressions they want to share before we get going? Gio, you seem like you want to say something? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking, okay, so it is a very different book than what we've covered before. But I also, this reminded me a lot about um, Pond in the sense of I had to read it as a sort of poetry because I don't know affect theory very well. Um, so I had to go about it and it had to remind me of something that I knew mm. and like it's very short prose and like the chapters are very short um, so to me this was also about like concept poetry yeah. and you can read it without knowing ethic theory you're just going to be very what the fuck <laughs> like I was yeah, yeah. but it is possible yeah I think that's very much the case. I think that's what I think is most interesting about the project is that is that on the one hand it's clearly academics writing it. Yes. Although <laughs> I would say one of the authors is more guilty than the other on that front. And mm -hmm. you can tell which one is yeah. writing it. That's the proper exegesis. I look forward <laughs> to hearing that. Yeah. But on the other hand, it is about impressions and sensations and that being so foregrounded and also trying to trying to express them as if they were sensations, so keeping them in a sort of poetic register. Yeah, and I think what's interesting is that in some ways, um, or you could sense that both of these authors are really established academics who have written plenty of books. And um, it seems like this is an attempt or something that they're trying to do to kind of break the mold of academic writing and mm. the academic writing that you have in the humanities um, of journal articles and academic books. But what's really interesting is that the way that they go about doing that is by making another mold or using mm. another mold, which is this idea of, it's called the hundreds because they call each of these, the little sections or aphorisms are called hundreds and they're all sets of either a hundred words or multiples of a hundred. And they say also roughly, depending on what their word processor <laughs> told them. So not exactly a hundred every time. Um, mm. But I think that's a kind of interesting poetic framework that they're, it's yeah. not like they're saying that they're breaking all the bounds. They're just putting on a different, yeah. I don't know, outfit or something like that. But, but it, oh. it felt kind of redundant, this, this hundred words limit to me. Like, uh, this form was not informing the, the content too much, but huh. uh, just a remark. I don't know, I felt like there was some wonderfully arbitrary cuts that had happened at the last <laughs> minute to make it fit within something. And that was like a, I felt the text felt a little bit scarred by shit, it's got to be within, within a hundred something at some point. But I'm wondering because um, what, like I had never heard about Kathleen Stewart mm. before. Um, but I have read bits uh, from Cruel Optimism by Lauren Berlant. Mm -hmm. And does this book like make a lot of sense if you have read a lot by uh, these authors? Is it like tying everything together in um, 
in it, the concept. It's very reminiscent of Kathleen Stewart's work. Uh-huh. Um, okay. It's exactly that approach that she has been trying, been pushing forward in her academic research, where you where you try and mine situations for data in a different way than is typical of. I mean, it's, it's anthropology that she's in. So is that a social science or humanities discipline? It's a. Uh, it's going to be contested. Um, this is a very humanist approach to it. Yeah, she's certainly on the humanities <laughs> side. Yeah, I'd say so for sure. Um, yeah, so that it, it, I was like, oh, okay, so this, this, this actually has continued and developed and become uh, more of that. And there was one which I think actually uh, came from an essay that I'd read previously where she talked about miners in, in South Dakota at one point, or I think Dakota, yeah. I, I, I consider this book kind of an exploration of method, um, more than anything else? Yeah, and um, not having read uh, much by these authors, so I can't really draw on that, but it did remind me of, um, has any of you, and I really hope you say yes, because I don't have it in fresh memory, but Reassembling the Social by Bruno Latour? No, but they do um, reference him through the book. They do? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, I should probably have noticed that. <laughs> I only thought about it today <clears throat> when I was thinking about, like, what can I say about this book? This art act, well, no, wait. Actor network theory mm. yeah. of um, where like he um, doesn't like to me this is a lot about networks right yeah um, very much so and like the impact of things and stuff like that and to him like he as as it says it's reassembling the social um, the network for Latour this isn't like the set of concretes um, but it's just, it's more about like the approach. Mm and the tracing of the associations and how he wants to create a new sociology. Mm. And it very much reminded me of what I remember of his him. Uh, it's very fragmented. But I think there's a similar impulse with actor network theory and what they're trying to do here insofar as both um, relate to text differently. So they kind of bring the text down to the level of any other object while also raising other objects up to the level of the text in a way. So each of them has these, um, or many of them have a set of parentheses at the bottom, which lists the kind of inspirations or interlocutors. Yeah. Um, which is a really interesting methodological move, I think. Um, <clears throat> and so these can include um, blue glass vases, Macintosh apples, tomatoes, but it can also be uh, Bart 1977 or... Uh, T. Mitchell, forthcoming. Yeah, and I mean, that is exactly what uh, Latour wants in that book, right? He wants to go back to the original meaning of the social uh, as that which connects, which mm. is what I see this book yeah. doing as well. Yeah, yeah. It's certainly indebted to Latour, I think, but don't you think this book is um, straying away from him in a way that it's kind of solipsist? Uh, it's all about those neuroses and and feelings that people have on the, uh, in their own mm. cranium. Yeah, I mean, that's also because like they are actually a tour, but they also then reference people like Gilles Deleuze and Guattari. And so there's lots of talking about the psychological affects of these conditions, these networks and connections. How could they not? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, they, they have different, yeah, this is very much, um, whereas the tour is like, definitely a sociologist and that's his his project they are in this weird space of whatever it is that a literature academic and an anthropologist are today given how interdisciplinarity is emerging as a way to hide the defunding and smashing together of disciplines whilst also finding i guess the possibilities that are that are that uh, that rises as well 
Yeah, and I think maybe less than, I don't know if it was solipsistic was the mm. word that you used. I think less than that, they're trying to account in a way that's not usually done in academic work for their own subject positions or writing positions or bodies, um, which is something that's usually historically been pushed out of academic writing. Um, and the way that they're, yeah, I think so then mm. the body becomes, or like the writing body and the practice of writing itself becomes other coordinates on this map um, of world making or what they're, yeah, I think in each one. Yeah, there was a, uh, a line here, which I thought was very, like it, it spoke to me about writing, which was, um, some people have long, lean writing muscles. Mine are mm -hmm. shortened and taut like a repetitive stress injury turned into a personal tendency. And I have a repetitive strain injury that has definitely affected how I think about trying to write anything down. Mm. It's like, I'm very aware of the way in which my body is in it is affected by the kind, like the, the prospect of doing lots of writing. And lots of writing is then sort of filtered through do I need to use my index finger very much for this? Or can I work around it? And it actually just infects how I think about what I'm doing yeah. all the time. Uh, but it mostly pertains to handwriting. Uh... No, it's for typing. Hmm. Uh, it's, the, it's, it's literally from computers on bad angles that I've got it. So whenever I mm -hmm. use computers, I have to like be in a very, very disciplined position. So I have, that means I have to set aside time in a proper way. I can't just like flip over my laptop and start typing. I have to like find a way to sit, otherwise I'm going to hurt myself for like a week. And that, I think that kind of, not like, oh, poor me, but more like the way that all these ideas come out through a body. And I think that's really important to highlight. And as often, as you said, had been historically kind of pushed aside. Like I'm always struck when I go to a conference and then like at the break, people are just racing to the toilet as if they were actually having a deep, philosophically meaningful conversation while needing to pee. But because of the conventions, you don't pee right now. Yeah, exactly. But I think also as your example, with your example, um, that there's something amazing about the way that there are all of these resonances in the book. And I think that depending on who you are, mm -hmm. so another coordinate ends up becoming the reader who is yeah. sort of inter related into the yeah. text or present in the text in some way. But then it's also, I think, yeah, anybody will have different lines jump out at them or yeah. things that seem relevant. Like there's one that I love about uh, in this one called Red Bull Diaries, where she describes, um, uh, says, I and another low-thighed white woman. And I tried Googling it and it's not, I thought maybe this is an expression no. I don't get, but that's, that's yeah. Wait, what association comes to mind? What do you, is it it's like thighs what? or is it like a baguette or like? No, I think it's like, you know, toast bread, so like sandwich uh -huh. bread, like kind of squishy white yeah. thighs that I could, for example, imagine maybe myself having in 20 years <laughs> if I <laughs> keep, uh, you know, you, sitting all day yeah, in the you, office <laughs> writing and not moving. You get one of those down jobs and yeah, yeah, it's a... Mm. Um, yeah, but I think that there's so many of these both body moments, but then also text um, moments that resonate in different ways with different mm. people. Um, yeah, I was curious, actually, because I had the same association as you, Joe, when I was reading again, that it did it did remind me of Pond, but for some reason I didn't hate this. <laughs> and that's the interesting thing. Because this annoyed me a lot, Yeah, um, <laughs> which I think is what annoyed you about Pond mm. is what annoyed me about this. Right. Um, and not necessarily in a bad way uh, that I was annoyed, mm. but I felt that it kept, this was very middle class, mm. which I think you sort of held a little bit against Pond 
of this like sad middle class woman that was really annoying, something like mm. that. Um, but to me, this kept like being uh, bordering between hope and resignation. Yeah. Um, but just. Ah, oh, and this is not a real critique of it because, like, this doesn't disqualify it from anything. But it was just so frustrating because I wanted more anger, mm. and I wanted like more like I when I was reading it, I was thinking, shit, I really want like the armed revolution from this, mm. not the not yeah. the is it hope or is it resignation? Yeah. Um, mm. where it felt very like self, um, or just like only revolving around itself. Mm. Um, which annoyed me. Yeah. I think that's the thing that's that the thing that I think I felt very strongly in Pond was yeah. that feeling of it this is a self-contained oh. world of beautiful images that don't connect to anything. Yeah. And but then I can kind of see this and I can absolutely see that and yeah. I think this does go beyond that. Um I think yeah. this is so much more mm. than just that what I which I just mm. said. But this is a less con- but this is a less coherent work as a whole than Pond yeah. is, yeah, for sure. Because uh, Pond is a very beautiful sculpture mm-hmm. of something. Yeah. But it, but it, like, whereas this is doing it, yeah. But yeah, the kind of use of language, the ridiculously convoluted sentences to do the same sentence. But there was something where yeah, I felt exactly. like Pond was letting me in and mm. this is not. Like, this is mm. sort of like pushing me away and like, what are you going to do? Like, this is ours, what are you going to do? Yeah. Um, where I felt... Pond was just way more mm. reader friendly in a way, mm. um, which again has nothing to do with the work, which has everything to do with me as a reader, uh, how I interpret it. Also, um, I guess the genre as well, because Pond is a piece of literature, mm. and this I I would say I I think this is a demonstration of method. Yeah, but yeah. I couldn't read yeah. it as a demonstration of method because I didn't know the method, yeah, 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 so yeah. I had to read it as literature. Um, yeah, which was weird. <laughs> <laughs> when they, I mean, they say that. There, we call them poems, talking about the hundreds. But I do agree that they're they're not poems. I mean, they could be a kind of prose poem, but mm-hmm. they're I think much more just trying to inject more style. Or mm-hmm. it's an attempt yeah. to just yeah uh, inject more style into academic writing or show how it's it, possible to do that. It keeps going back to like it being about the ordinary. One of the short chapters is called something like the revolutionary ordinary, and ordinary is a word that keeps popping up. Mm. But what do they mean by it? I guess they actually mean, it, I think it's the ordinary, yeah, the new ordinary, yeah. I think that they mean something which is a little bit problematic, which I guess is that which is excluded from academic attention. Okay. Um, because, yeah. Yeah. To me, this book, like, it might be about the ordinary, but this book is, like, so clearly not ordinary. Mm. This book is very experimental. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in its depiction of the ordinary. Mm. And yeah. I, yeah. Yeah, I think that's, um, that's very, very much the case, that it is... And I th- but I think it's deliberately in that kind of in a particular school of criticism, which tries to inject the ordinary with some sort of remarkable thing that should pay you should pay attention to. Like they talk, they have a, there's a chapter I can't remember which one it is where they talk about how many um, how many how much like grease fried onto a pan have like, have I forgotten about in my lifetime. And I think that was a really good image. Like t- the impossibility of attending to everything mm-hmm. means that okay, so what can we then reattend to, bearing that in mind, and also that. We don't desire to pay attention to everything, but we should also be able to appraise what we've decided to let go by. But I think this is a move in ethic theory and new materialism, which is there, I guess, some what coming out of is this, like like you said, injection of the ordinary mm-hmm. with, um, like I'm thinking of Jane Bennett's Vibrant Matter, where she sort of looks on the street and I think it's Baltimore and 
describes all the garbage as vibrating and <laughs> magnificent <laughs> and magical. <laughs> and sort of, why don't we take the yeah. time to pay attention? Yeah. And there's this impulse to inhabit the world in a mm. different way. Which um, is very reminiscent of the way that in Ben Lerner in 1004, he talks about the ways in which he can understand the different commodities in his house through this kind of ridiculous supply chain. That's how you sort of inject this energy. Like, what was the, fo- the forces of production that brings this to life? What is the kind of... Uh, intention that's required to put this piece of trash before me. But yeah, this book is, I couldn't figure out, is it very perused? Is it very condensed? Like it's so full of like just beautiful sentences, Mm. but it also feels like there is a key to this book that I just don't have or possess, which makes it very strange and which makes it very like closed off as as if it's an example of, yeah, a certain mm. method, right? Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. like, if you don't know that, then, like, this book is will make no sense to you. Sort of, but, I mean, I think that <clears throat> the method itself is, is somewhat in development. Yeah. I think it's not, it's, it's, um, it's in a contested field in a particular corner of a, of a diminishing academic practice. Mm. So it's, I guess it's more like uh, an aesthetic sympathy that you have within your intellectual work in a certain way. Like, if, like for me, it's very difficult with the kinds of things that I study to do textual analysis mm. uh, because textual analysis for me doesn't really describe what pop music does because mm. I'm talking, I talk about within within the kind of like Latour-esque sort of social thing, but also trying to incorporate the feeling of being in that particular sort of network. So this speaks very, very much to me as being a methodolo- methodologically important intervention into trying to access Things that exist but can't be neatly objectified. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think it's a, the aesthetics of a method, I think, is the thing. So if you have to, like, kind of tune into that. But I don't think it's... There's not a manual, <laughs> is my point, I guess. Mm. Well, I'm going to destroy this uh, appreciative vibe and just uh, say that I found it to be a rambling academic stream of consciousness, largely. <laughs> That's the thing, though, because it's not really a stream of consciousness, though. It's too well... Like put, it's too well edited because I was thinking as well, mm. is this like a stream of consciousness? Is this like academic? But it, it just isn't. It's too well constructed to be a stream of consciousness. But it feels like one when you read it. <laughs> <laughs> very nebulous mm. uh, with occasional snippets of, of really uh, nice wording mm. uh, that they've marked, but, but it's like looking for gold in Klondike. It's frustrating, like your, your knees start hurting and stuff before you find anything. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, but I think that's the thing is, one of the, one of the things with the method is, are you looking for something in particular or are you looking for more problems? I would say, I think this is a project that is about producing new pro. They talk a lot, I think, later on about objects and the need to produce them. And identify and like and, and define them in order to then like investigate them uh, because because looking for God of course is like to try and find an answer but I don't think there is there's not answers in this work no and that is frustrating. They say we are interested in the elaboration in the elaborate strange logic of the world being in the scene that is pulsating not separating what's out there or in us without the plane of consistency a series will often appear in tangles without syntax or as lines shooting out because the implication is on a frequency. So I think that even though they're writing in this very defined form that they're trying to avoid this impulse again that I think is very pervasive in 
academia and academic writing to separate things into boxes. They're trying rather than, you know, put sorting things out to draw circles around things that already exactly. exist um, and see what happens by drawing different sorts of things into connection with each other. Yeah. And isn't that also like the object for Latour? Because yeah, exactly. he's the only one I can draw on mm, like here yeah. because mm-hmm. I study theology and like I know nothing <laughs> about cultural theory. I But know it's like he it. wants to transcend the universals, right? Um, the already established categories. Mm. where So you avoid statements like it's because he had a bad childhood. Yeah. But seeing it as something that connects mm. instead of the social as this like external fear, sphere. Yeah. But like integrating it, yeah, yeah, which I see this book as being a prime example of, yeah, and therefore being really interesting, and also don't know what to do with it. But it's mm. like an experiment, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I really appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, because I think there's like, <clears throat> and there's a wonderful moments. I think us speaking to like the overall structuring of the work, which is like well, there's a moment later on where I think it's Balant writing about taking um, supervision meetings with a student. Mm-hmm. And she talks about her next one coming in and talks about the, the the bulimia shaping of her teeth. Yeah. And that only, like that, that really hit me in a way where I was like, that resonates so much with the discussion of the pressures of the working world they're discussing and the the outside economy outside their middle-class bubble they're aware of, but are not part of that outside. Mm-hmm. And that, you get this environment, this this very like cr- cruelly optimistic environment mm-hmm. in the, yeah. in that sense, actually. which has actually I think you know you can she's seeing her theory play out in her student who she's about to come see, whose anxieties are too diffuse to say. Well, that's because of your uh, your dad fat shaming you, yeah. but it's um, real and it is f- physically affecting this student's body before they come and talk about. Well, what's your thesis going to be about? I hope you get a good grade, you know. Mm. And I really that that. Coming later in the book, those kind of sympathetic movements happening later on, they it did feel like they'd built up enough material to say that this is you can now read this in that way. Mm. Yeah, and I was very impressed that that had actually worked, because other than that, this is a series of emails back and forth, <laughs> which is which is a lovely thing to have done. <laughs> But co-writing too is yeah. I mean, I guess like I think I might have said that it's like, I feel a bit like I'm the choir that's being preached to by this book yeah. because I work so much with ethic theory and mm-hmm. I've yeah read at least a lot of Lauren Berlant and I'm also have also thought a lot about different ways of writing academic criticism. And I've been working on, a <laughs> uh. um, I've been working for the last year on an article, which I have found the absolutely most frustrating genre to write in because it's nobody can really tell you exactly how to do it but it, it needs to look a certain way and be a certain way yeah. and I think that this I, this book was so wonderful to read in that process because <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. just like nope we don't need to do that yeah um, and of course they're in a very privileged position in a number of ways um, where they can actually yeah. do this yeah. but like Or, Even yeah. within the privileged bubble of the academy, being two professors, one of which has a professorial chair, is a privileged position from which to write. Yes, yeah. it's a uh, yeah. But I, it's I don't know. It's inspiring. I think that things like this exist so that you you don't only have to write academic articles, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe that that will. Um, yeah. I think that ties into a thing that I was previously thinking to formulate a question about, but didn't have the time on my way over here um, about what this is. In relation to knowledge, what kind of does this produce knowledge? It does. Yeah. Um, at least in the way of what Sierra just said about at least inspiration, 
which is also a sort of knowledge, right? Yeah. Um, of what you can do and... Yeah, because I was sort of thinking about the same thing as mm. that question. And I think it does in mm. a really weird way. In, yeah. Um, yeah, in one way. Yeah, because one of the things that's always like, it struck me living here for the last few years is when someone, someone Danish translates Wittenscape into science. Yeah. And they say that they're studying literature science. And I'm like, what the fuck is that? Mm. Because to me, science is a very particular thing about empirical facts about reality mm. um, that can be tested and disproved. Whereas Wittenscape, of course, means like knowledge making, yeah. basically. And that has seemed an interesting tension because I get these forms I have to fill in to like apply for jobs and stuff, and I have to answer what my biggest applica- uh, my biggest um, contribution to science is. And that seems such a loaded and teleological form that there's a finite amount of knowledge in the world, and you have to have found a bit more of it to be uh, found significant. And that has to be a bit more in the direction that we need to go towards the edge of knowledge. And I think what this work this book does very well is it very nicely demonstrates what's wrong with that concept. And it also documents an experience that is often shared or um, put into words here, right? Which is not that often put into words in a way that isn't explained. But I think that's what Sherry said about like different sentence pops out for different people very much in this book. Um, and I think that that ex- like shared experience is also like knowledge producing mm. um, because it will confirm some things and yeah. Yeah, I think it's maybe Lauren Berlin, maybe in Cruel Optimism, who talks about like the potential of affect to make worlds mm-hmm. um, and to like draw connections between people. And also you can think of the writing of affect as doing that same kind of work of drawing different sorts of things together yeah. and people together and creating communities um, by writing or, yeah. At some point we should define affect in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to. <laughs> no, it's hard one to do. Does but, anyone- also, but just like talking about this book now feels way more different uh, than any of the other books we've talked about. Mm. Like this feels more present or important in some way. It's about, I don't know, um, there's something about this book that just also feels different now that we talk about it. I think it's it's something about the position it sits in. There's something about its the difficulty of categorizing it that means that it doesn't just fulfill a role in a certain discourse. Yeah. Although, it, you know, obviously, as that is cooling down, a, a, a world in which that discourse is appropriate is emerging. And it is, you know, in certain circles, you know, you can get this kind of like, yeah, it's amazing in the same way. Like, oh, that novel is fantastic. It, you know, when you go to Louisiana in the summer or whatever. But it does also have a, like, that's such a small niche that it does have a, a bit of resistance to that, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it certainly produces knowledge in a way that now I know that affect theory is not a thing for me. <laughs> I'm sure this book has and this way of thinking has a lot of fans but I'm not one of them but I also feel like we take this book way more seriously now for some reason Mm. than if it had been published by someone and it said poems Mm. yeah it's just it's way harder yeah like this is just a way harder book to talk about and to (laughs) to read for some reason is it that the stakes feel higher in some way or I don't know what it is about it. Is it the professorships and the names? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to burn my bridges. <laughs> but I think one thing that's I'm noticing as we're talking about it now is that it feels very serious, yeah. which is funny because my experience of reading the book was I, I maybe if not like laughed at loud at certain things that I thought there were some very funny parts mm. or at least um, that there is some sort of humor that they're trying to 
right in. I mean, just the loaf side. White woman <laughs> really gets me. Yeah. <laughs> or um, I think in the same one, there's something about combining a vodka, a vodka soda with a ginger kombucha mm. um, to produce a speed like high. <laughs> That's something I haven't tried. <laughs> But I certainly felt like a butt of a joke. <laughs> uh, it's just so confusing and yeah. I guess maybe like so. What what do you think is the the thing that makes that makes you that is unsatisfying for you about this approach to phenomena? Mm-hmm. It just felt so futile. Probably my sensitivity is quite different. It was just confusing at times. There's one of those poems that. Um, finally contains uh, both the, the best parts that I found in the book and, and the worst and the ones that I really don't know what to think about. So, the Strange Situation, a wedding album on page 108. So there's one sentence uh, which is kind of nice. Uh, a fly darts out of the window, you crack without sending a thank you note. When a way out appears as a way in, we'll tend to scramble toward it without after a thought. I think it's nice. Hmm. But then um, two paragraphs uh, below is a sentence. It was as though I had drawn them from my palm like taffy, liberating them into life without the snapping sound of lost teeth. Uh, (laughs) What the heck does that even mean? And then in the last paragraph, there's a sentence that goes, I am lucky to be a dreamer because a dreamer never stops being interested. It's just just cheesy. (laughs) That was a bit cheesy, yeah. And there are a lot of those like yeah. sentences of like, what does this even mean? And I can kind of forgive it for that because then there's just some really good sentences that I really like. There is one about how the university is like a hub for Cartesians <laughs> with OCD. Yeah. Where I was like, what does that even mean? That means a clear and present thing. It's empirical. I could describe in this names. <laughs> the university is a harbor for Cartesians. Cartesians, OCDers testing out their desires for impact. I just liked it, but I couldn't really like see exactly. But I had a feeling like, yeah, I kind of know what that means. The whole impact thing. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's a that's a common feeling. You go like, oh, this person thinks their mind is somewhere else than their body, and Mm -hmm. they're and they're writing papers incredibly fast based on that misconception. Because everything's easier if you just have that kind of simplistic splitting off dualism that people have been getting away with for centuries based on a misapprehension about what consciousness is. That's my fucking two cents on that one. (laughs) (laughs) There's one that reminds me me directly of the past uh, podcast we made about convenience store women. Roles are the practiced labors of being we copy from others, yeah. which is exactly what we talked about. Yeah, that's a nice podcast. one. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, but but uh, it kind of reminded me of uh, the feeling I had when I was reading uh, Robert Walser's Micrograms. Um, I don't know. She was a Swiss writer who went nuts and wrote... Uh, she filled all those pieces of paper with very small uh, symbols mm-hmm. uh, and everyone thought it's just some pictograms or something. And then it, it turned out it was just microscopical writing. Uh, <laughs> they yeah. translated it and uh, read pages and pages and just incoherent rumbling because he was schizophrenic or something. But then there's this absolute diamond of a sentence that makes it worth uh, <laughs> trudging through, through the whole book. Mm. Uh, and that's a lot of how I felt here. But um, 
uh, these two professors, they don't have uh, schizophrenia for an excuse. <laughs> <laughs> they, they could make uh, a little more sense. But I think it's about slowing down. But I mean, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, I also think that this is, there is editing, but at the same time, it is also has a weird, a weird, a weirdly raw feeling. They wanted to capture something about the, 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 the moment. So it's got that, it's definitely edited, but with a care to keeping some liveness to it. And that's the thing, because we don't have a main character that is like walking around in city mm. and thinking about this. And then we know something about her or him, yeah. right? And we can like tie that into. And it's yeah. not a stream of consciousness yeah. either, because it's it's too constructed uh, yeah. to be like it never yeah. trails off or anything. Um, it's too dense. Um, yeah, it's too self-conscious, uh, and it also and it's also very like self-referencing. Uh, like yeah. it keeps going back to what the hundred is, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's like very yeah. programmatoric. And then it says, for example, what is healing when illness is reason and reason a style you're supposed to fake to maintain being useful, convenient, and familiar. And like <laughs> I kind of broke my brain a little bit, like trying to yeah. Uh, that's a good sentence. Is, though, yeah. yeah, it's yeah. a really good <laughs> sentence, right? But that's the whole book. It's it's very specific. Yeah. And like the X then Y. Yeah. Um it's just mm. it's very specific. While yeah. at the and that was where I couldn't find that like sometimes it's very perused, sometimes it's very like dense and almost impenetrable. Yeah. Um and it's always like bordering between those two and also about mm. like the hope or resignation mm. from things yeah um yeah yeah i think that's an interesting tension um more broadly as well like the because yeah the hope versus resignation thing is frustrating but i find it equally frustrating when there's someone who's like there's, there's people whose work is more concrete in its or like more theoretically rigid in its frameworks who are then say yes we're bringing about revolution but they have no plan for day two it's always about this event, this rupture. And it's, so it's like this ridiculous thing, whereas this, the resignation, I think, is almost a symptom of, oh, shit, we read all those revolutionary theories and we've not worked out what day two would be. And because look at how ordinary and how complex the ordinary is. And so I think that awareness of complexity really does slow you down in a certain way. Or at least, um, yeah. Also, I don't see now a complete, like, total dichotomy between hope and resignation. Hmm. I think they're both very passive. Hmm. Um, which I guess I think this book is, mm, which kind of still annoys me a little bit. <laughs> now I'm eating chips and talking. I was just going to say, I was thinking about what you said about how it's not a novel in the way that there's not really a character or a protagonist that we're following. Yeah. And I was thinking that if, if you had to say what the narrative was about or who the protagonist was, I think it would have to be like the writing of the book. Yeah. Um, in a way, and along those lines, I think that that's the right writing is the most active part of the book. Yeah. Or like that's as active as it gets a sort of writing. Yeah. I think. Otherwise, it's, I think you're right that it, there is this passivity to it. And mm. like the writing becomes the driving force. Yeah. And there are maybe some problems that come along with. It's not that dissimilar from Adorno, though, saying the only thing you can do is think. No, no. Ex yeah. And I think they're very much working. <laughs> like, I mean, yeah. this sort of format is very similar to a book like Minimum Moralia. Yeah, that's true. Um, and I think they're working within that register of really mm. like working through the potential in writing. Yeah. Um, but that, of course, can provoke criticism of how much uh, yeah writing much, can do. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is... Only if only there was a plot, right? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> if only there was like a, a secret where you could um, unravel it and realize, oh, 
They both had the same father figure problem. <laughs> There we or, go. Or uh, genocide in the inside. Yeah. So clearly, this book is a narration of life in late capitalism for knowledge workers of high status. Yeah. And how these knowledge workers of high status can try and do an analysis that they consider be, to be in good faith and fail miserably. <laughs> 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 It's kind of weird though because I was googling this morning, uh, trying to read mm. reviews, so yeah. I didn't have to like come up with anything to say mm. about it myself. Mm. No reviews. Mm. No uh, reviews. A I've friend of two. mine has wrote one that will be published later this month on the Believer. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I'll um, advertise that. <laughs> <laughs> As of today, no reviews. Yeah. No, really? Okay. There's But one in New Yorker or New York Times they've read. I could even quote it because there's one nice oh, quote. And, oh, that was but wasn't it, there was something about Lauren Balan in the New Yorker. In yeah. the New Yorker. Mm. Right? There's a big What's section it? about uh, the hundreds. Oh really? Uh, quite uh, review-like. Yeah, I've even even uh, written it down. It says that this is at times so abstruse that so much that you forget it's supposed to describe basic facets of everyday reality. And then, then <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's also the thing about basic facets of everyday reality <laughs> is they are quite abstract if you um, pay attention to them. Like if you're like, if for example you are a crass empiricist like Daniel Dennett mm. and he wants to talk about how to make the perfect egg he'll talk to you about the he'll say well all we need to do is do a complete analysis of um, the liquid temperature at every stage through the egg and then the liquid texture through the water and then measure the rate of radiation through the substances and then but you wouldn't actually know anything about what boiling an egg is like you just know a bunch of chemical formulas and numbers but you can boil it like a pro <laughs> You can, but no one will want it. You have this this hard boiled egg, and no, no community, no worlding, no worlding. The egg will be without a world, unless the egg is its own world. Unless the egg is the body without organs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so I think the the narrative in that way is quite clear. It is uh, it's a story about the awareness of becoming irrelevant from a cultural discourse and trying to work out what relevance would even mean. Yep. Yeah. All right. The I king is naked. <laughs> But what is it to be naked with men? <laughs> It's actually uh, one of my favorites. Yeah. If I could call them that. Yeah. What is mm. to, what is it to be naked among men? It's a great one. Mm. Yeah, Which I have page? 105. 105. I think it's a question from Foucault that they are that uh someone is meditating on and then uh, situating that within situations of desire and how desire can be destructive. It's actually a very remarkable short one, I think. But I'm, you know, I'm just looking at it and not tag talking anyone about it on the on the radio, so. Host of the year. Host of the year. <laughs> yeah, it starts nicely if, uh, if I'm allowed to quote. Yes, please do. Uh, the lake is infused with alien fish and smugglers dumped into the water unseeable things, and soon bacteria were taking massive shit there. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, we are fucked from building haywire on ecologies like that, choosing, choosing, barely chewing, confusing survival for desire. Uh, this is something that speaks to me. Yeah, yeah I remember highlighting the yeah. confusing uh, desire for survival. Mm. Yeah, and this is... Yeah, I think this is a, this is a very nice piece. So who do you and think wrote that? Uh, Stuart or Berland? Oh, sorry, but there's also like a really great sentence that ties into that. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm trying really hard to want the world that is in front of me to want. Yeah. Which is also a good sentence. That's a very good and sentence. And that's also, again, like hope and resignation, right? Yeah. Um, 
which I just keep coming back to. But yeah. like, I just see that as, yeah. It's actually, a th- I think uh, Michael Franson's running a thing about how hope and resignation are the same thing. So Really? Yeah. Well, could you introduce us? I think you guys have met. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, this is interesting and clearly not for everyone. Um, <laughs> Yeah, well, the hundreds isn't for everyone, dear. The hundreds is only for a few. The first hundred, actually. As I said during the toilet break, they, they they've lost touch with the common man. <laughs> I don't know though. Man, the, the... You, you gotta make a bunch of assumptions about the common man, haven't you? I mean, okay. You... <laughs> I'm one of them. I want to sleep with common people. <laughs> I mean, from I would say that this book is extremely pedagogical, mm-hmm. and I think in a way that it. For me, at least, it avoids seeming too uh, pedantic. But I think if you think about like the way in which it's pedagogical with the fact that these are two university professors who might have an influence not only on the way that they conduct their own kinds of college classes and undergraduate classes, but also um, in the way that those, yeah, that education might be thought about and knowledge production might be thought about. So from that perspective of people who have something to say and might have some sort of an influence on the way that, say, the education system looks like in the U.S. or maybe elsewhere, um, then I think there is some sort of broader potential in a book like this. I think certainly discursively, but I wonder if materially it will. Yeah. My, yeah. <laughs> it might, because I've, this is the kind of thing that uh, gives humanities bad rap and um, <laughs> le- leads to cuts in funding for <laughs> humanities. See, I think this is a massive misnomer because the humanities just do that by their very existence. Because mm. like people who do, who are the Cartesian OCDs, they are the only people who will be allowed in at the last on the last day that the university is open, and then they'll also be fired. <laughs> I love like, how you've just bonded with the Cartesian uh, OCDs. I was like, what does this mean? The, and Macon is like, I know what it means. Yeah, I know what it means. <laughs> but like, because I it just like, so for example, they you know, in my experience, university departments um, are in humanities are cut whether or not they're radical whether or not they try things new or whether or not they try things experimentally. And there's this weird misnomer in very conservative ones that if we just keep quiet enough, if we just make sure that our things are abstrusely and specific and definitely producing knowledge that could be made into a documentary radio program enough, then we'll get away with it. But no, (laughs) they're coming anyway. Yeah, you're right. (laughs) So I think rather than, I think this, you know, as you're saying before, uh, Sherry, that just go out in a massive blaze of glory where you try and work out what it is you actually think about the world rather than adhering to a rule that is for whose benefit? The impact surveyors? <laughs> Our bourgeois overlords. <laughs> and I is the bourgeois underlord. Um, so I guess, yeah, with my rant out of the way, which I guess clearly has outlined my sympathies and what I think about it, I'm going to ask the rest of you to recommend this book. Is that what Tommel? Because, <clears throat> well, I would say... Kids, don't do the hundreds because it's a hell of a drug. And I mean a drug in a boring way. (laughs) (laughs) Did all the drugs when I was 15 and I haven't done them since because they bore me. (laughs) Drug with an A. (laughs) (laughs) If I I pronounce drug drag wrong and then say it's spelled differently. (laughs) Okay, I get you. Gio, what do you think? Um, actually, I would read it again, and I think I will before I recommend it because I know want to know what I recommend. Um, mm, yeah. 
Uh, I think that's actually the best I can say. And I think it's better than just saying I would recommend it is that I want to read it again. Yeah, because cool. like it's intriguing and it's weird. And yeah, I want to read it again. Mm. And Sherry? Well, and then, I've, I've, I've just been... Oh. <laughs> no, and then I might not recommend it. But at least I want to read it again. <laughs> um, and I'm just going to continue fangirling and <laughs> say that I recommend it, but acknowledge that it might not be for everybody. Mm. I would say that if you have an interest in ethic theory or if you're very frustrated with the academic system in some way or the institution, <laughs> then this is nice. <laughs> but only as an insider, all right? But if there is, yeah, I can absolutely see that yeah. if you're not coming from a certain, yeah, point or perspective, then it well, might be a little. It's hard annoying. because I think what happens is you meet all the Cartesian OCDs and then you get this massive distaste for academic work. And then everything looks like that. I think that's a thing that happens quite a lot because everything then just is in that same camp when everyone, someone like cites a name of some French guy. But uh, it is good to try and... All I'm saying is the common man is an affect theorist. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Um, okay, well, next month, Gio and I are taking it off. Yes. And a, a cartel of strangers will be in your ears talking about... Uh, Roberto Bolaño's 2666. You will have heard some of them before. Should we tell them what we're doing next month, Macon, since we can't be on the podcast? Oh, um, well, next month I will be massaging my calves for the most part. Uh, they're very tense and I think I should relax a bit. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be on a tropical island sipping mojitos. I would be, but I, I can't fly because my calves are too tense, so... And also no one, like, you have cats, right? <sighs> yes. Can I just uh, say <laughs> hi to my girlfriend, Anya? Hi, Anya. She's listening to us now. Not now. No, no, tomorrow. Hi, Anya. No. In a couple of weeks. I can be bothered to edit it. Thanks, everybody. Ciao.